Hello everyone, my name is Arti and this is the Mahabharata. First of all, I'm so sorry to have left you hanging at the penultimate episode of book two. I was traveling. The plan had been to complete the book before setting out, but somehow things just didn't work out that way. My apologies. But now we're back and we're at episode 48. Sabha Parva Debrief, also available online at www.themahabharatapodcast.com or facebook.com forward slash the Mahabharata podcast. Book 2, the Sabha Parva, or Book of the Assembly, is among the shortest books of the Mahabharata. But what it lacks in size, it makes up in sheer trauma, raising us first to euphoric heights, only to execute a death drop by the end, where we see our heroes literally stripped of even the clothes on their backs. By the end of it, they have nothing, no kingdom, no home. We're not going to see a bed or a shah for many years. How could it happen? Why did it happen? Look at the consequences. To Mother Kunti, so long-suffering, she was finally a proper queen. Now she's reduced to living on the kindness of others. To the brothers, they'd worked valiantly to build Indraprest. Now they're back to the woods, eating roots and berries. What about the wives? Leave aside Draupadi. Remember the Pandavas have other wives? Where are they supposed to go? And the children? They're going to grow up like orphans. Just imagine the schoolyard taunt. Your dad did what? It's like if Jeff Bezos, certified king of the world, suddenly gambled Amazon away. The children are left insecure, vulnerable, to grow up as poor cousins in the homes of their relatives. That's how the Pandavas grew up, right? Now their children will share the same fate. These are all effects of Yudhishthira's making. In the early part of Book 3, the Pandava brothers will try passionately to convince Yudhishthira to resist the outcome and to fight. Draupadi will lament bitterly. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's first conclude book two, shall we? In our last episode, we saw 19 throws of the dice and a 20th for Draupadi that results in a total meltdown when Draupadi contests its legitimacy. This leads King Dhritarashtra to freak out and to dismiss the game before the Pandava's wrath has time to gather force. But not for long. Duryodhana applies his dad again to authorize one final decisive game, and a messenger is dispatched to lure the Pandavas back. Yudhishthira and the brothers enter the hall warily. If they're feeling trepidation or disgust, they hide it well. The blind king's leaning forward in his seat, tense with anticipation. Duryodhana standing at the back, biting his nails. As Shakuni ushers Yudhishthira to the table, he whispers to him, You know, when the old man returned you your kingdom, I praised him for it. But now you're back. He explains the new rules to the assembly. 
No goats or sheep or Picassos, just one throw for the kingdoms. Winner takes all, loser goes into exile for 13 years. Everyone's shed the pretense that this is a friendly family game. The conditions are as follows. 12 years in the forest, a 13th in hiding. If discovered, the exile will start all over again. What do you say? All eyes flip to Yudhishthira. There are a few things he might have said. No comes to mind. But Yudhishthira voices only one concern. Won't this destroy the house of the Kurus? But the question hangs in the air like a lonely lantern. Nobody responds. Let's play, says Shakuni crisply. He hands Yudhishthira the dice and watches him throw. The conclusion is foregone. Yudhishthira loses his kingdom and consigns himself to exile for 13 years. Welcome, everyone, to Group Therapy Session 1. Millennia of Indians have yanked their hair out in despair, trying to understand why Yudhishthira played again. What was the mad compulsion? When you've already done it once, seen its ruinous effects, why return? Let's tackle this question today. The first and most obvious explanation is that Yudhishthira is a gambling addict. Like a heroin junkie, he just can't help himself, you know? He can't decline a fix. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't feel credible to me. Had the king of Dharma been a poker fiend, we can be confident a gallery of gods would have clued us in. Think of how the heavenly PA system had boomed out at Duryodhana's birth. It had corralled a whole chorus of donkeys. There had been thunder and lightning, not to mention a grimly perched committee of vultures gazing ominously upon the scene. Had Yudhishthira suffered such an affliction, we would have gotten a hint. Second possibility is that Yudhishthira is just a simpleton. Nice guy, just got taken to town, you know? He's the archetypal weakling surrendering his lunch to the schoolyard bullies. Given Yudhishthira's mild-mannered disposition, this explanation is tempting. But I think we have to nix this as well. He's recently been crowned Universal Emperor. He has the most powerful armies in the world. He's the son of a god. His brothers are SOGs. And soon we're going to find Yudhishthira is actually a pretty stubborn character, quite up to resisting peer pressure. Third possibility is suggested by the late Sanskrit scholar and translator Johannes van Boitnen. In an article I'll link on the website, he suggests that Yudhishthira may have been beholden to play as a condition of the Rajasuya sacrifice. Hmm, this is interesting. Let's review. Remember Yudhishthira has just completed the Rajasuya with the ambition of becoming king of the world? How do you do that? Well, you don't just randomly throw things into the fire, close your eyes and hope for the best. Like all things Vedic, there's a very particular process, and von Poitnen points out that if we check the Rajasuya's user's manual, we'll see that our entire book too follows the pattern of the ancient sacrifice. Step one, formulate the intention. Yudhishthira does this after talking to Rishi Narada, who guilt shames him by telling him that's what daddy Pandu wants him to do. 
Step two, identify and sweep aside obstacles. Yudhishthira does this by eliminating King Jarasand, memorably dichotomized by Bhima in hand-to-hand combat. Step three, go on tour, lobby your neighbors for votes. Yudhishthira sends his brothers out into the cardinal directions, and the kings are either persuaded or dead. Step four, initiate the ceremony, designating a guest of honor. Yudhishthira picks Krishna. Step five, show the world you can handle a challenge. This is Shishupal, mouthing off to Krishna and Bhishma and promptly getting his head chopped off. Then there's one final thing. Play a game of dice. Now, you don't absolutely have to, but it does allow you to demonstrate that you, great king, not only have the power to crush people like little bugs, but you also have the favor of the gods. Now, of course, this is risky. The gods are unpredictable. Sometimes they're napping. Sometimes they're cranky when you need them. So best to keep it pro forma. On the other hand, if someone challenges you, you kind of have to accept. I mean, you've just declared yourself king of the world. You can't exactly walk away from a challenge. According to Van Boytenen, this is where it all falls apart for Yudhishthira. Now, this analysis, showing how all of Book 2 follows the rules of the Rajasuya sacrifice, is what in academic jargon we call pretty damn cool. And it's a big relief, right? Finally, an explanation we can take to the bank, that elusive last piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Yudhishthira was gambling not because he's a junkie, not because he's a weakling, not because he's lost his marbles but because he'd initiated the sacrifice and was obligated to see it through. But like many a grand venture launched with soaring nobility of purpose, Napoleon's march on Moscow, yogurt shampoo, reality television, it had all gone horribly wrong. Instead of ruling as universal emperor, Yudhishthira had lost it all. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hold on a sec, you're saying. You can't compare Yudhishthira with Napoleon. Napoleon didn't offer the Rajasuya, and he didn't have Krishna on his side. Yudhishthira, on the other hand, had done everything right. If the dice game was intended to demonstrate the favor of the gods, why didn't he win? I mean, it was Krishna himself who'd guided him. Krishna had advised, Krishna had directed, Krishna had personally overseen the plot to kill Jarasand, and he'd served as guest of honor. So how could Yudhishthira lose? Are the gods giving us mixed messages? Are they playing with us like we're chess pawns? Can we not trust the gods? You may be on to something. But there might also be another explanation for Yudhishthira's galactic-sized gambling debacle that in the Indian context, at least, is the simplest. This is that King Dhritarashtra asked him to play. Dhritarashtra sits in place of Yudhishthira's father. Like Ram in the Ramayana, Yudhishthira has filial obligations he can't ignore. 
as Indians don't need me to tell you. In ancient India, as also in medieval India, and also, by the way, still rather in modern India, if your dad tells you to do something, you kinda sorta gotta do it. Now, ideally, your dad doesn't propose you wager your wife. But parents are a risky proposition. Like Ram, who goes into exile to honour his father's promise, Yudhishthira will do whatever Dhritarashtra asks of him, however perverse, perfidious, self-serving and exploitive. It's his duty. I mean, he's the king of dharma, for goodness sake. He has to set an example. So hopefully now we can sleep better, having solved the mystery of why Yudhishthira returned to play. Though, of course, we've raised the disquieting matter of why dad's calling. Let's turn to our next burning question. What game are they playing? Wikipedia thinks it's a board game like Chopper or Pachisi, and scholars agree. Sadly, it's beyond my skill set. But dice games have tremendous symbolism in Hindu tradition, and if that sort of thing interests you, I'll post a reference on the website. Question 3. Where's Krishna? Was he or was he not there at the assault on Draupadi? Did he save Draupadi, or did she have a hidden light-speed yarn-spinning machine? Let's look at the details. According to the oldest manuscript, Krishna's absent from the dice game, and the miracle is a spontaneous event of uncertain provenance. In other words, not in any obvious way linked to Krishna. Now, before you start flinging tomatoes, let me explain. At the beginning of Book 3, which will commence in our next episode, Krishna rushed to visit the Pandavas in the forest. There, he'll make it very clear that he knew nothing of the events of the gambling or of the assault on Draupadi. We'll soon come to that episode, where we'll let him speak for himself. In the meantime, for all intents and purposes, our text says Krishna was not there. And why would it lie? In fact, we'll learn that Krishna was very busy troubleshooting elsewhere, and he's going to tell us all about it. The Bollywood soundtrack turns mournful as Yudhishthira loses the game, and cameras follow somberly as the Pandavas shed their designer clothes and slip into forest garb. Even the press coverage is muted. One curiosity, Anderson, is that it's only Yudhishthira who played, so technically it's only he who's committed to exile. But as you can see, the CNN camera pans wide, all the brothers are going with him. The BBC reporters making the same point. The notable thing here is how united they remain, inseparable, even in this moment of utter devastation. There's no dissension, no talk of revolt. It's truly remarkable. An intrepid NDTV reporter dashes out with a scoop from the women's quarters, Word is that Draupadi will accompany them, she declares breathlessly. Look, there she is, getting counsel from her mother-in-law. They're preparing to say goodbye. Silent footage and then commentary. You can see Kunti's in anguish. It's a sad, sorry day for this great dynasty. Unimaginable events in the fabled house of the Bharatas. A noisy kerfuffle breaks out in the courtyard and all the camera crews rush over. 
It's the younger Pandava brothers being tailed by the Kauravas, beating drums and jeering. Cameras capture Dushasana prancing about Bhima, calling him a cow. A disgraceful scene, Anderson. You can see Prince Duryodhana there, walking behind Bhima, imitating his gait. He's the crown prince, for goodness sake, comments Anderson's panel as they watch the Kauravas swarm the Pandavas. It's shocking behavior, so undignified. Suddenly Bhima whips around, making everyone jump. The drums stop. His massive form looms menacingly over Duryodhana. Get it off your chest, you dung beetle, because I'm going to make you remember. We'll be back, Duryodhana. The words will echo in all the press promos. And then I'm going to kill you. Arjuna will kill Karana. Sahadeva will kill Shakuni. This foot of mine will grind your head into the dirt so the earth can suck your blood. I will drink the blood of the Shasana. I swear it to you. The Himalayas will move, the sun will dim, the moon itself will lose its luster, but my word will endure. The words send a thrill through the press corps. Now Arjuna joins his brother, standing formidable like Thor, every muscle in his body tense and chiseled. Bhima's assigned our tasks and we will complete them. Karana will die at my hands. Shakuni will die by Sahadeva. You can count on it, adds Sahadeva. Tell that disgrace of the Gandhars. His dice won't save him on the battlefield. All of you who insulted Draupadi, your day will come. Walking the path of Draupadi, we will empty the earth of Dhritarashtra's sons. In our next episode, the Pandavas will say goodbye. Dhritarashtra's face will be a shadow play of wrestling emotions, elation, fear, anxiety, shame. What will he say? What would Bhishma or Drona or Kunti or Draupadi as she emerges from the palace dressed in a single stretch of blood-stained cloth? Let's find out if you'll join me for another episode of the Mahabharata. <laughs>